0: And, and this is Celebrity Memoir Book club. club. Welcome worms new and old. For those of you who aren't quite aware of what we do here, this is a book club that
1: ain't your papa's book club. I don't think a father has ever been in a book club. I don't think there's ever in the history of the world been a man-based book club. That's just graduate school. (laughs) I think men read books sometimes. My dad has Mike Ditka's autobiography. Yeah, but they don't read it together. He doesn't call (laughs) a buddy and discuss the symbolism. Okay, well, if he did, this wouldn't be that. What we are are two comedians, first and foremost, making jokes, having a laugh, learning about pop culture in an ethical way, which is by reading the words written by celebrities. Sometimes we deliver a harsh dose of opinion. Sometimes we're just here to have fun. I would say to us, fun is a harsh opinion. (laughs) Here's the thing, is we're going to give you guys all of the best gossip from the books we read, and in exchange, you will hear our takes on it. And let me tell you, you don't have to. If you want to hear a take-free reading of the book, go buy the book yourself. But if you want it quick and easy and fun stick around and join the convo so from this point forward there will be opinions watch out you're in the slime zone baby (laughs) and the slime is my dumb brain juice (laughs) ashley yes i have a question has anybody enjoyed the ride thus far there are some people out there on this planet
0: (laughs) that are the stars that light my way and they are the ones who give us stars how many five star reviews are everything that's ever mattered to me And I just want to give a quick thank you to the five-star reviewers. Now, our phone only shows us the U.S. five-star reviews for some stupid-ass reason. So if you live elsewhere, next week, we're going to do Australia's reviews.
1: Get your Australian reviews in, and we will be reading them next week on the pod. And we cannot wait to say hello to our friends down on that. But starting with the good old U.S.
0: of A., our first five-star reviewer, thank you to Erica in Iowa. Is this heaven? No, it's Erica in Iowa. Next, we've got Ion is lucky. No, we're lucky to have you. Mall's Joe. I love a good cup of Joe. 90 Day for Life. Oh, my God. A person after Claire's own heart. W.M. Constance. I am constantly grateful for you. Khalid R. Oh, he's a friend of ours. Thank you. Ally Cat 1998. Oh, the coolest cat around. Liz Forte. I'm so thankful that five stars is within your forte. Beefy girl where's the beef <laughs> giving us a review <laughs> <laughs> katie new 98 oh my god i'm so happy you're new and here k-l-l-a bs be careful about those bees l-sub-v-3 thank you for five stars not three sizzler sizz. oh piping hot and sizzling tay hern hey hey back at ya hannah scully 13 our lucky friend 13 pink poodle how very cute T-R-S-H-L-V-S-F-S-H. Thank you. Bluest Miser. Oh, how blue. And that's all for this week. Thank you guys so much. These five stars are really what's keeping her brittle little bones afloat. Subscribe to our Patreon if you want Claire screaming at me about not drinking milk and saying that she can tell how much I don't drink
1: milk because I'm a brittle, brittle bitch. I don't think you're brittle. I would like to take that back. I do think you definitely have osteoporosis. That's brittle. You know, people can have walking pneumonia. (laughs) <laughs> I think you have walking osteoporosis. I don't have osteoporosis because my bones are strong. They're just sharp. Your joints leave a lot for the imagination <laughs> and you have untightened joints. I feel like someone has to get in there with a wrench and just do a couple of half turns and yeah, tighten the bolts like, back osteoporosis up. osteoporosis is like the innards of your bones being weak. Mine is like my between of the bones are weak. I do believe that if I wanted to break your little arm in half right now, we would take almost nothing. <laughs> Should we move on before it gets too violent?
0: I am an absolute
1: fear sitting this close to Claire right now I'm not gonna hurt you but I do think that if we were both in a car accident something went wrong you would have no problem just snapping me (laughs) I would emotionally have a problem doing it I would hold myself back because I know what's right and what's wrong but I don't think physically it would be too hard how about this I think if we were both in a roller coaster that stopped abruptly I would survive and I think (laughs) your rib cage would just fall right off I think if we both took a tumble down the stairs,
0: you would jam a finger and I would split. You would just be a bag of rocks. Like, the skin would be the bag. Your little bone bits would be the rocks. Do you know what my theory actually is? Is that I would be fine and you would be fucked. I feel like swims when when I get knocked down, I just kind of, like, become one with the earth.
1: Like, <laughs> it just bounces me right back up. In drunk driving accidents, the drunk driver is often okay because they go limp. And I do think you live your life pretty limp. You live the limp
0: ass life. kind of, like, limp and moving with the groove. Like, if the roller coaster stopped, I would be one with with it. Whereas you are the most rigid person and you would actually, you would be the snapped rib cage.
1: Unfortunately, I think you've argued your point quite well (laughs) and I concur in the roller coaster situation. (laughs) So I will say in a natural disaster, you would survive an earthquake, but I do think if we were put in a cage fight, I would win. Yeah, no, for (laughs) sure.
0: If I couldn't just like blend in with the bars of the cage, I think I would be in for a tough week.
1: (laughs) Speaking of Ashley. Yeah. If you had a memoir, what would the name of last week's chapter be? Well, this is a change in tone. I would call it good vibes only
0: because I'm trying to only let in good vibes. Okay. (laughs) Here's a new mental illness that I've coined a term for. It's called the post viral blues. And that's where you get horribly depressed after anything goes viral. And I, on our TikTok, our episode, and my personal TikTok, had some viral hits this week. And it's so nice when people are appreciating a thing that Claire and I have both put the better half of a decade into. Oh God. I don't like to add up the hours. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) We have been podcasting now for years. Please don't tell them. They don't need to know how the sausage was made. Okay. I'm so appreciative that new people are here listening to the podcast, but I do feel like I have this problem where sometimes when things start going good, I start bracing myself for the haters. I start bracing myself for people to have like snap internet judgments where they just get too mean And I get really nervous that the people who find us and like us, I won't be able to live up to their expectations. And I know that that's an insane thing. And I know that I'm starting to come to terms with the fact that maybe you're right. I should see a therapist. I don't have insurance right now, so it's going to have to wait. But I think acknowledging it is the first step. So I do think what I really need to do is stop bracing myself for negative scenarios that I make up in my brain and just ride the good vibes.
1: Oh, my God. I'm so excited for you. Get on that surfboard. Thank you. Stand on your two brittle
0: little legs. As we learned that one time, we took a surfing lesson. Surfing ain't for me. But
1: surfing these good vibes is my passion. I do think you could learn to go limp in the internet and just like let it take you wherever you go and know that whenever the ride is over you will be able to stand and survive it yeah think of you and think of me that the harder you try to fight and brace yourself against it the more you'll snap like my little ribs on a roller coaster but the more that you just ride and disengage the more likely you are to survive yeah the more that I'm just like
0: okay that thing is going well and I'm really happy about it Claire yes what would you call your memoir this week time for a change interesting
1: just because I've been doing a lot of stand-up this week and as you guys know I've been really fighting to get back in the community I feel like I have kind of gotten back into it and I'm getting my feet wet I did four different shows in the last two days nice and I don't know if you guys know this you probably don't because you don't watch me do stand-up live but after the pandemic I really took an artistic choice And that choice was to make my entire stand-up set about teeth. (laughs) The teeth are a wave that you've been fighting. Yes. And the (laughs) dentist. And so I decided to really delve into that. I'm just like trying to figure out what I want my voice to be. And I feel like it's definitely sillier than the average, but also maybe I've let it get too silly. (laughs) Yes. Maybe 10 minutes of all jokes about the teeth is too silly. Now that I'm doing a lot of shows in front of a lot of people, it turns out that like there is a part of me that does want to make them laugh and... If you don't like teeth jokes, then there's not a lot in there for you. I'm going back to the drawing board and saying, what does the next post-teeth chapter of my life look like? I am very excited for this. I do want to follow up on last week's episode. Okay. So as you guys know, we did Olivia Munn last week and we read her memoir and it was pretty damning. I think you and I both went through a little bit of a nervousness last week about succeeding on the back of making fun of a woman and criticizing her for making fun of women. Yes. I was genuinely concerned that we were going after somebody who was another cog in the machine. It was written per her agents and managers in the publishing house's wishes. And I was like, is it fair for us to be criticizing her? I did feel like based on the book, yes. But then what happened is a lot of people came to our DMs and our comment sections and were telling us that, no, in real life, she is that bad. She is a holy terror. Really made a lot of people's lives worse in the time that they've known her. Not just in the de I saw her eating brunch and she wouldn't get up and take a photo with me. And I worked with her and she fired me for no reason. Terrible bosses. Like type. PTSD shit. So if you had any qualms about that, fear
0: not. She is as bad as we thought. Anyway, let's get into this week's episode. Before we start, I do want to
1: trigger warn... Yes, drugs and sexual assault And violence and kind of everything. It's a lot. This week's memoirist is none other than the queen of porn, Jenna Jameson. How to make love like a porn star, a cautionary tale. In this essay, I will argue <laughs> that I think this is one of the great American tales. I think it touches on so many topics and it does a beautiful job. Both intentionally and unintentionally, it illustrates the greater shortcomings of America. America. (laughs) I think it's super well written. It's been one of my favorites so far. She's the protagonist you're rooting for who does come out the other end at the point of this book. This book was written in 2004. Yes. On top. I do think she went through some struggles after the book. It's not damning of the porn industry as much as it is literally everything else. (laughs) But before we get into it, Ashley. Yes. What did you know of Jenna Jameson before we opened up this tome? Before we opened up this literal book brick of a book.
0: 700 pages. Broken up into six books. <laughs> How many books is the Bible? There's four disciples, so that's four. There's like one Old Testament and one New Testament. There's Excelsior. <laughs> Before I opened it up, I knew of Jenna Jameson. She was the only porn star I'd ever heard of until I was like an adult who watched porn. <laughs> She was like the only porn star that that had ever crested mainstream media
1: in my world. I think I could have named her, and for some reason, Ron Jeremy, who I often mixed up with Ron Howard, and I was always like, that man has such crossover talent. (laughs) (laughs) But she was the only female porn star that I knew by name, so that's pretty big. I was the same way. I definitely knew of her as a porn star. I feel like I knew her look. I don't know that I could have picked her out in a crowd. She had that Pamela Anderson early 2000s, late 1990s, giant boobs, like real sex pot, Hugh Hefner's type of vibe. I will say in this book, there's a lot of pictures. So that's
0: helpful. I knew the version of her that had that really big eyeliner, like the long eyeliner, smoky eye that she did that she's very famous with. But I didn't know the innocent
1: baby faced version of her at all. I had
0: never seen that
1: before. I never seen that. The other version of her I knew was the blonde woman with a bouffant who was married to Tito Ortiz. When I was a teenager, in the Perez Hilton days, and the TMZ days, there was always leaked photos of them fighting and like the police getting called. She often was getting arrested for beating him up. I also remember seeing her as like a talking head in something.
0: I want to say it was one of those like VH1 I love the 90s types videos. Let's dive into this book, shall we? Let's go. So like we said, this
1: book is split up into six books. I want to quickly acknowledge the composition of this book because I do think it's brilliantly done in the way that historically we have really made fun of a lot of books that include listicles and silly little add-in nonsenses that are clearly meant to hit a certain page count. This book is brilliantly done. This book has some pretty heavy topics in it. Every time it gets very heavy, she adds a couple-page comic strip detailing a point from the book, be it like the suitcase pimp, or she'll in a funny way be like, here's the awful porns I've done when me and my husband were getting into a fight, or here's the top 10 commandments of how to give a blowjob, here's the top 10 commandments of if you want to be my husband, here's an interview with a male porn star. She does a really good job of keeping it from being so heavy all the time. And then she also (laughs) intersperses a lot of horny fanfic erotica. Yeah, except for it's not fic, real sex. She'll take certain moments of hooking up with somebody and go into real horny little details. So in the course of reading this book, and of course, me and Ashley are reading these books pretty quickly every week. I went through a roller
0: coaster of emotion. It is so devastating, and then all of a sudden, so horny. <laughs> and it's
1: like, how do I feel? So, Jenna Jameson was born in 1974. So, in present day, she's 47. This book came out in 2004. So at the time of publication, she was 30. So Jenna Jameson starts this book when she's 16 years old and she says there comes a moment in every life when a choice must be made between right and wrong, good and evil, between light and darkness. These decisions are made in an instant but with repercussions that last a lifetime. My troubles began the day I chose darkness, the day I chose Jack.
0: Jack is her toxic first love. He is a tattoo artist. They met because she was a 16-year-old with braces. Her brother brought her to get a tattoo. She went back almost immediately for a second tattoo. And that's where they started really bonding. She has this incredible ability to really play up the wide-eyed innocence. And I do agree that she does seem so like sweet and doe-eyed and has braces and whatever. But she was also a 16-year-old going to get
1: a butt tattoo. She talks a lot about at this point in her life and how she was such a good girl and she was so sweet. I'm not going to put a moral implication on anything anyone does. But I think when you think about what a good daughter and a good girl is at the ages of like 10 to 16, she's like, yeah, I was doing acid and ecstasy, but only on the weekend. (laughs) I had never done anything mischievous before. And then you hear about her childhood and you're like, I wonder what to you was bad. And so in her view, it really is actually like heroin, coke, meth. Those are bad girl behaviors. But what she was doing was just like...
0: Getting drunk. At this point, she'd already done like a wet t-shirt contest that she went to with her brother. She definitely does have a very different view of innocent little girl behaviors than I, a
1: suburban girl, did. I think her innocence is wild for the suburbs, but it was nothing compared to the true underbelly, sinister lives of the people that she is about to get involved with at this tattoo shop. Exactly. Also there is City Teen Mm -hmm. and then there's a Vegas City Teen. Vegas in the 80s seems like a hellfire. (laughs) Yeah, like reading this, you're just like, oh Gossip Girl was for virgins. (laughs) And I think when she talks about being a good, innocent little girl, I don't think doing acid on the weekends at 15 makes you evil. I do think the people she got involved with now were actually involved with the mob and doing hits on people and murdering. And like, that is not good. So Jack, and here's what I want to say about Jack. She meets Jack. She tells him she's 18. They start hooking up. Jack obviously thought, She was legal, and I don't think the difference between 16 and 18 is so much, but I do think she, as we said, had braces. The fact that he was attracted to somebody who was so clearly innocent, so clearly naive and overwhelmed, and she was very quiet. He loved that he could take advantage of her. Meeting him got her into a world of trouble. Yes. So she meets him, they
0: hung out, they start seeing each other, and he brings her very early in their relationship on
1: a boat trip with his biker and tattoo buddies So her boyfriend, Jack, did not have parents growing up, and he was raised instead by his uncle, Preacher, who was a man known about town with, like, mob ties. He was a real good old-fashioned gangbanger. He was, like, a horrible person. He was almost like a Mark Twain character, horrible person. The way she describes him, he's just this
0: absolute menacing shadow creature. Of pure evil. So she goes to to this boat party.
1: She even tells Jack she has to be home by midnight and obviously that's not going to happen. But her dad is a cop and he's a single father and he does his best to love them, but he does not have the communication skills it takes to be a parent and he seems kind like of kind of an absentee parent. But Jenna does want to obey by his rules. She's like, whatever I do, I cannot miss my midnight curfew. So she goes to this
0: boat. She's up on the deck hanging out with all the bikers. She goes down below to use the restroom. Preacher immediately attacks her and rapes her.
1: She is able to sort of fight him off and run away. The assault still occurred. It is important to her later in the book that she did fight tooth and nail for herself. And she gets up and she looks at Jack's friend, Mark, and Mark looks at her and just knows what happened. And she gets off the boat and she goes onto the bay and everybody's looking at her and being like, oh, he got you too, huh? And it just becomes very clear to her that this is something he does to everyone, Yeah, that nobody will stop him
0: and nobody will help her. And she even has a heartbreaking line of did Jack know that he does this and just there's no way to stop him or did Jack bring her as an offering? She says, I just want to go home right now. They lie and say the boat is broken.
1: And she says if they hadn't done that, if they had taken me home that night, she's like, I would have run to the police. But by the morning, I had to sleep on this boat. She's like, by the time I get home, I was so shaken and frazzled and upset that when I get in and I see my dad sitting on the couch waiting for me to get home, her dad was mad that she had broken curfew and said something like, I'm done with you. I'm done putting up with your antics. So she puts all of her shit in a trash bag and moves in with Jack. So she's living with Jack. She's 16 years old. She needs money. She decides to become a showgirl. Her parents had actually met in Vegas, and her mom had been a showgirl. At this point, we learned that her mom died right before Jenna's second birthday of skin cancer Mm -hmm. when her mother was like 33 years old. So she auditions at a
0: bunch of places, but one of the big issues is that Jenna is a meager 5'7 or so, and
1: you have to be about 5'9 at most of the big reviews. She finally gets into like the worst one, and it turns out it's the worst job. She's like, we rehearse for six hours a day, and then we do two shows a night. And you get about $50 at the end of the day. And the costume is like 20 pounds. So after a couple of months of that, Jack goes, why don't you just become a stripper at Crazy Horse 2? There's this huge culture in Vegas
0: at the time. I don't know if there still is. I've been there once. The bikers who hang out at the tattoo parlors and the girlfriends of the bikers and tattoo artists are all strippers. That's just the dynamic of the world they
1: live in. And he's like, just go be a stripper there. So she goes, she's 16 years old. She still has braces. Vinny, who runs Crazy Horse 2, is like, You can't be a stripper with braces. (laughs) So she goes home and what does she do? She takes tools and pops them off herself. And she just goes back in and she's like, okay, I got my braces off. And he goes, wow, already? And she's like, well, I peeled them off myself. And he was like, oh, you're in. This is the first real example of true entrepreneurial ingenuity. Something about Jenna Jameson, at this point, her name is actually Jenna Masoli, is that she is deeply competitive and she wants to be the best at everything she does. It doesn't matter what she is working towards, but she's going to go and beat out the other women. She's going to be at the top. So
0: even though she peeled her braces off, he still said, you look too young to work here. And she said, listen, I will make you a lot of money. I'm very good. I know how to do this. And she is reflecting on this while she writes this book saying like, I do not know what came over me. I was timid. I was afraid. I was insecure. And somehow when it comes down to it, this bitch pulls through. So he's like, okay, then you're on stage in an hour. Show me what you got. And she's like, wait, what the fuck? I've never stripped before. She is doing a real fake it till you make it here. And she can. Everything she does is smart. She's like, I'm going to pick songs that
1: boys like to rock out to. She just knows what she's doing so hard, just like instinctually. She had a grown up doing pageants and dance classes. And she says, I walked on stage as if I owned it. Like I was at a dance competition and ran through one of my old pageant routines. I worked the men like I had worked the old pageant judges looking directly into their eyes as if to say that this dance was for them. I was in control of myself and of the men around me. And I loved it. I loved the attention and the confidence it gave me. Even though I had no idea how to hustle guys for lap dances, I was the new girl and they all wanted me. At the end of that night, she made $1,000. This is really where she comes into her own. She's 16 years old and she says... The Crazy Horse 2 was the best high school class I ever took. The subject was social dynamics. It was amazing how the incentive of cash made it so easy to talk to people. Before, I'd had no motivation to learn to be polite or carry on a conversation with a guy. They all wanted the same thing anyway within weeks at the club I began to transform from a geeky teenage girl into a money crazed psycho and I loved it she just
0: really figured out how to work the fucking room and she like figures out her own strengths she really
1: has a business mind about it and I guess in strip clubs there is a real hierarchy and it's very much externalized in like who has the best locker and she goes in and is like I want to be number one and she works her way to the top she figures it out and she gets there she doesn't make a ton of friends no but she gets the best locker and she's making so much money she's making thousands of dollars a night from just regular And
0: she even says most of the men were into me because I looked so young and innocent. So I decided to amplify that. As my grandmother always said, what you can't fix, you feature. And that's just like not a thing I'd ever thought about. But like, think about how many of the most prominent people in the Mm -hmm. world are famous because of what is other people's insecurity.
1: You know what I mean? Like the models with gap teeth. And then she meets Vanessa. She makes Mm -hmm. one friend and it's Vanessa. It's Jack's cousin, the daughter of Preacher. Vanessa is a stripper. She comes in and she's great at it. And she teaches Jenna everything she knows. She's like, what you do is you get together with a waitress. You offer them kickbacks for everyone to shots you by with the guys. You have them buy it on their tab. You have the waitress give you water. They get drunker and drunker. You get a bit of money from the waitress because she's making so much money on tips. They're blacked out. They're paying you more money than they even have in their pocket. Everyone walks away happier. Or you would sit and talk to them for four dances and then they would ask for a lap dance on dance five and then charge them for all five dances. Yeah. Her and Vanessa would work together as a tag team and she was making thousands of dollars a day. I think other women were making maybe $5 a lap dance at this point and she was like, I was doing so well that I started asking for $20 a lap dance and then 100 And then it got to the point where I'd only give a private lap dance for five five hundred bucks mm-hmm. and I just had a roster of regulars, including Nicolas Cage. Yeah. Who would come in and just throw thousands of dollars at her. Jack Nicholson. Tool, Motley Crue. These are yeah. the people coming in. And within a span of a few months, Rose to the top. And her and Vanessa were best friends. Nobody liked them, but... Nobody liked them, but they were
0: like the Barbie twins, two blonde bitches. They would do dances together. and They were just
1: in charge. And then Vanessa starts to pull away. She noticed that every time she was at Vanessa's house, Preacher would come over. She doesn't want to be around him. And she knows he doesn't want to be around her. So one day Vanessa cuts her off. And finally, Jenna's like, what happened? And Vanessa goes are you having sex with my dad? He told me he fucked you. And Jenna, of course, is horrified and breaks into hysterics and is like, no, this is what he did to me. And then, of course, it comes out that that's what he has been doing to Vanessa her whole life. Vanessa really opens up about everything that's ever happened,
0: all the trauma that she's been through. Jenna is just devastated because that one night was so traumatizing and it's just been Vanessa's reality for so long. So she says, I felt so helpless listening to her. I'd never gone to the police to report my rape because it would have just been my word against his, but I told Vanessa we could go together. However, she said she wasn't ready to face the shame of everyone knowing. Before I left, she promised to confront her father and put a stop to it. And I hugged her until we both couldn't cry anymore.
1: And I think this is a really resonating experience and not the extent of what had happened to them. But you and I like joke all the time about how if it happens to you, you're like, ah, what a crazy thing that happened to me. But then if it happens to your friend, you're much more likely to help your friends see the truth mm-hmm. in a way that you don't want to face yourself.
0: Because it's also so much easier to see it in other people. Yeah. Throughout
1: this book, there's a couple other situations that Jenna is just like, that was a weird night. And you're just like, Oh. It's hard to think that you're worth defending, but you love your friend and you're like, you are worth defending more than I am. It's Christmas Eve. She goes to pick up Vanessa the very next day. When she walks in, there's Christmas music blaring. They find her in the bathroom with a rope around her neck, foaming at the mouth, topless. But her feet are on the ground. Because Jen is dead as a cop, she goes, I knew from him that women, first of all, are less likely to hang themselves, mm-hmm. are more likely to use pills, which she said Vanessa had a ton of. And second of all, women don't kill themselves naked. That's not how a woman wants to be found. She's like, I know exactly who did it. It was Preacher. She calls the police immediately. She gives her CPR. She does everything she can to save her friend. She is dead. And when Preacher comes, he doesn't even order an autopsy because of course he had strangled her. Right, And so it was just deemed a suicide and nothing was looked into. And this is obviously a breaking point as it would be for literally anybody. Yes. And she has a really.
0: A hard time with this because she feels like if she hadn't left her alone that night which obviously you can't Jenna, if you're listening you can't what if <laughs> these were like 18 year old girls I think she was still 17 at this
1: point she had been stripping for less than a year and I think something that's very interesting about the way this book is written is that we move past this moment pretty quickly mm-hmm. the pain and the depth of it and the impact is well laid out and described but her life does move on and I do think that that matches her experience of it because by the time she's 20 years old we're like 400 pages into the book so much has happened to her And I do think when you look at why is her life falling apart as it does in the next few years, it's like there was this insane trauma. But I don't think in her real life it was ever acknowledged with Mm -hmm. the weight that it deserved. And I think that this book reflects that. And that is like, yeah, this horrible thing happened and everybody in the community was absolutely fucked by it. But we just had to keep going. Life kept going. And nobody ever stops to acknowledge. This really illustrates the community that she was living in is that she says,
0: afterwards, I discussed Vanessa's death with some of the other women around the tattoo shop, most of whom had heard stories about preacher molesting girls somebody needs to do something about it, they kept saying. Even though they had no idea what had happened on the boat, I felt like they were talking to me. Everyone always knew what was going on. And it was just this energy of like, well, someone should do something, but no one will.
1: And of course, everyone had known the whole time. When Jenna herself got off the boat, all the girls were like, he got you too. As if it was like a rite of passage And it's not until he had murdered his own daughter that somebody is like, well, maybe now something should put an end to this. And of course, nothing did. And then of course, this is followed up immediately with a comic. Which is, I do think is kind of brilliant of the writing because she could have made her life almost unreadably tragic. You need the relief. So Jack does
0: finally start distancing himself from Preacher after Preacher murders his own daughter and Jack's cousin and decides to open his own tattoo shop. At this point, Jenna has a lot of money that she's saved up from strip so she's funding Jack opening up his own tattoo shop and of course Preacher just like firebombs the place on the day it's supposed to open and they're back at square one it's not gonna be
1: easy to go against him not only had she funded it financially but she had helped him like literally lay the drywall and the bricks at this point she had started snorting meth I think in a response to the tragedy of Vanessa's death Mm -hmm. so she was like I was laying it voraciously (laughs) she's like I was there all waking hours which were every hour (laughs) at this point she's still at Crazy Horse stripping But I think after Vanessa's death, she was like, I can't be here anymore. It is just too painful to be here without her. She was going through the motions, but she didn't love it like she once did. And she really wanted to get into magazine work. She says, I used to look at my dad's Playboy magazines when I was 13 and dream of being one of those girls. The photos in the magazines made the girls look so beautiful and glamorous, like models of perfect femininity. The soft focus shot of flawless faces framed by sun-streaked blonde hair remind me of the old modeling shots of my mom that my father kept in his dresser drawer. I do think it's interesting in this line because we've had a couple memoirists and I think Holly Madison was one of them who grew up idolizing the Playboy women, who grew up idolizing Marilyn Monroe is a big one. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting idol to pick as a young girl and I do think this sentence just like psychologically is an interesting key to when you don't necessarily have a female role model. Who are you trying to be as a woman? All she knew about her mom because her dad did not tell her anything about her her mom. So all she knew was that she had been a showgirl, a showgirl and she was seeing these sexy modeling photos and then she's looking at other sexy women and being like, well, that's who my mom was. That's who these women are. That's who I want to be. And I also just think it was Vegas culture in
0: general. It doesn't feel like there was any sort of stigma. She was still going to school at this point during the day. She never mentions graduating, but she was still in high school and she was like, I just didn't want anyone to know. Like one time someone from the basketball team came in, kind of recognized me, but she just like gaslit him and she was like, no, I'm not Jenna. And
1: then left for the night. But she gaslit him. <laughs> he was like, are you Jenna? And she was like, no. She gatekeeped her identity to keep her girl bossing afloat.
0: <laughs> I do feel though that there was not a stigma around stripping and
1: sex work in this community that she lived in, in any way. Her boyfriend took a ton of pride in the fact that she was the top stripper. That was something she had achieved that he was really proud of. He'd bring her to the tattoo shops where all the girlfriends hung out. And it was like, this is my girlfriend. She's the top girl at Crazy Horse. And because she had this goal of being a nude model... It was a very natural next step where first she was stripping and then through the women at the strip club, she was able to meet photographers. Let's talk about the woman who introduced her to the photographers.
0: Yes. So Vanessa is gone. She's not really enjoying the strip club anymore. And then she sees this woman, a woman she had never seen before. She said she was sitting on the side of a small stage in the back of the room. A single spotlight shone down on her, casting her in an angelic glow. A lace shawl was wrapped around her shoulders and a soft, perfectly straight, raven black cascade of hair Fell over them. She had a tiny waist, a plump round butt, and boobs like cupcakes with beautiful little cherries on top. So she is just transfixed by this woman who is new. She's having a little bit of trouble getting lap dances. And so she decides that she will be this girl's Vanessa. She's like, it's my responsibility to teach
1: her the ropes, to take her under my wing. She goes, it's not real life in here. It's a game. One big game of mind fucking. If you're somewhat in tune with other people, you can pick up on what they're thinking and who they are by talking to them. Then you can win. You may not be a manipulative person deep inside, but in here you must manipulate. And you will learn that you can get anything you want by maneuvering correctly. But then of course, she wasn't really in it just to help this girl.
0: I don't think she had ever really even considered being attracted to women until this point. I think she was just appreciated beauty. And this girl's kissing her, and it's just an all-night sex romp. This is one of the
1: examples of just, like, the
0: real horny, not fan fiction. But she just, like, really gives you a play-by-play
1: of this night. It is steamy. So at this point, meth is really the drug of choice. Jack is into it her brother, Tony, who she had always been very close with, he's super into it. Jack wanted me to smoke meth and my brother wanted me to shoot it up, but I thought I'd just snort it like a good girl. But her brother is mainlining meth and he is so addicted. She's getting scared. Jack loves meth. The story she tells that really breaks them is Tony comes over and asks for just a small bump to get him through until his dealer gets back to him. Jack calls her up later and screams at her and is like, what the fuck? Where'd all my meth go? She's like, I gave one little bump to my brother and he goes, well, then he came back and robbed us. And when he robbed his own sister for meth, That's when Jenna was like, all right, I had cut you off. And so she makes the first move in mending the relationship with her dad and finally calls her dad. And she says it was like a very sterile, odd conversation, like two co-parents discussing their child. Mm -hmm. But basically she's like, you need to help him. He's going to die or end up in jail. And his dad's like, all right, it's going to be hard, but I'll do it. She has kind of taken some
0: steps to help her brother get help, but she is no longer speaking to him. So now she doesn't have a brother in her life. She hasn't talked to her dad except for that one conversation in ages All she has, like, her whole family in the world is her boyfriend, Jack, who is now extremely addicted to meth also, and this girl, Jennifer, the girl she hooked up with from the club. She and Jennifer are kind of, like, known girlfriends at the club, kind of running around, hooking up all the time. She is, like, in love with Jennifer, She says they talk. Their relationship is just completely different. But she's obviously still with Jack. She's so attached to Jack that she's just kind of with both of them in two separate worlds, kind of. Like in two
1: compartments of her life, I guess. And they are also just the only two people in her life. Yeah, she has a really interesting line about her relationship with Jennifer. Well, she actually has a lot of sexual relationships with women. But it's always secondary to the men in her life. And she always describes sex with women as almost a reprieve from how violent the men are is like a soft oasis. And she says after so much time stripping, there are side effects of the job. It spoils your relationship with both men and money. You see too much of both and you lose respect for both. That is why most strippers are bisexual and why I learned to live up to the heartbreaker tattoo on my ass. It is an interesting insight of like when all of the men in your entire world are some of the most violent, awful people. And then you're walking around a strip club where like every woman is like the hottest person you've ever seen. She does end up in a lot of sexual relationships with women, even though she never is truly in a relationship with one. They always also have a boyfriend or something.
0: And so Jennifer also has a boyfriend. So Jack comes into the club one time with a friend. Jennifer goes over there to Jack and his friend, and then shortly after starts dating this friend, Lester.
1: And it breaks Jenna's heart. But of course they keep hooking up. But there is this weird thing where it's like they both have boyfriends, and the boyfriends are the main ones. Yeah. But it's almost like they have a friendship and... And the only way to show true intimacy is to also be sexual like you have to consummate any love in your life even if it was meant to be platonic love
0: to round this out jennifer does get her in touch with a photographer who is known to sort of be a springboard to help get girls' photos onto
1: the right desk. She meets this photographer. They take a bunch of naked photos of her. They send them to all the people and they get on the desk of this woman, Suze Randall, who's famous for shooting the Playboy pictorials, the Hustler pictorials. Penthouse. She shoots basically every naked photo that's coming out of LA. So Suze gets the photos,
0: invites her out to LA to shoot. First, it was tough because she's on this set and everyone assumes she's like someone's kid because she's still this absolute baby-faced child but it sounded like a really positive
1: experience yeah she really liked it but they're working her like a workhorse and she realizes now in retrospect that they pay them per day so they would shoot upwards of like 10 different outfits in a day to sell to as many people as they could she's taking off like wildfire honestly Mm -hmm. her photos are in every magazine she's international She's almost shooting herself out of the game, she feels, but she's going back and forth now between Las Vegas and LA. And one day she comes back from LA to put money into her cash drawer. And when she looks and expects to find $30,000, she finds nothing. She realizes Jack has been stealing all of her money for drugs. And he's like, what? I didn't think you would care. And at that point she loses her mind. So she runs to her dad and Tony's house. And what she finds is a completely empty ransacked shell of a home yeah it's not for weeks when her dad finally calls her from a random payphone that tony his girlfriend selena and her dad and her grandma are all now on the run and they won't tell her from what or why and she doesn't find out for years now the only two people she had in vegas that were her family are in a different state every few weeks on the run from whomever yes so now she is
0: back in a situation where jennifer and jack are literally the only people in her life that she really has so at this point, she starts smoking meth. For a while, she was only smoking meth when she wasn't really working. And at this point, she also realizes that Jack is most definitely cheating on her. She decides that the actual only way to get back at him, because there is this insane code of conduct in this community that they live in. Like a man cheating on a woman is par for the course, but a woman cheating on a man is like that man is emasculated. And so she decides what she's going to do is she is going to have sex with someone on camera. She's going to start doing porn. People are going to find out about it. She has this little interlude about how people get into porn. She says, step one, teenager wants to be a model. Step two, teenager starts dating tattoo artists and bikers. Step three, teenager becomes a stripper. Step four, teenager starts modeling nude. Step five, teenager starts acting in soft core all female adult movies. She says she would have gotten there eventually. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of her plan all along. But the reason that she got there when she did is because of revenge.
1: So she goes out and starts doing softcore stuff with girls she had met shooting in LA. One of them is this girl, Nikki Tyler. Andrew Blake is kind of like the best known
0: softcore director in the biz. She ends up working with Andrew Blake and getting her feet wet in these productions. Then she agrees to do girl-girl scenes. That's kind of the initial line she draws is what's okay is to do a scene with another woman Then this guy, Randy West, is so enamored with her. He's like, please, will you do this threesome scene? And she agrees to kind of make it a two and a half some. She's like, I'll interact with the girl only and not interact with the guy. But then in the moment she's so caught up, she's like, maybe it wouldn't be that bad to do a girl boy scene. He denies to this day how much he paid her. But I think the original scene was like $2,000 and he kept like doubling it. And I think she got seven grand for this one boy girl scene, which was like unheard of, especially for a newcomer.
1: Up and comer 11. (laughs) It was the name of the porn. So she comes home. Of course, it works. Jack ultimately finds out. He freaks out. They have a huge fight. After a week, he's back. He's back in their apartment and they're just doing lines of meth again. It's no problem. This is the point where she gets severely addicted to meth. She's done doing porn for the moment, but at this point, the market is pretty oversaturated with her photos. She's smoking more and more. She's trying to do photo shoots, but she's like no longer able to do it because she's lost so much weight and she can't really get through a photo shoot without smoking. And she also does one other porn. So there's the
0: softcore film that she does. Then there's that Randy West film that ended up being like a pivotal moment in porn. The first internal pop shot. (laughs) (laughs) Then she does one other where she's, Very unattracted to her scene partner, sweats on her, and she's just like, "This is repulsive." I hate porn, and she isn't into it anymore. Now she's smoking meth and getting skinnier
1: and skinnier. There's not really a lot of work for her, and she's doing a bad job. At the end of the day, you have to be professional to do these things. She was showing up late. She was high the whole time. She couldn't hold her body up. She was too weak, and she said the meth was a problem because it would cause her to clench her whole face, and so she looked weird in photos. And she had been stopping doing the meth when she would take photo shoots, but it got to the point where she couldn't ever be sober. Nobody wanted to shoot with her anymore. And she was like, okay, I'm at this crossroads where I can either keep smoking meth Or I can keep working. And she's like, so I stopped doing photo shoots. And she had also quit Crazy Horse at this point because her star was on the rise. And she
0: was like, I just didn't like the strip club anymore. Jennifer was so infatuated with Lester and spending so much time with him that like she didn't have a friend there anymore. And she just didn't like it. She
1: is big about never going back. And she Mm -hmm. recognized that she had sort of leveled up and she couldn't go back now. So now Jenna is a mess. Jack is cheating on her all the time. They're both addicted to meth. She has no idea where her dad and brother are. She's stopped working altogether. She's blowing through money, and then one day it finally happens. Jack leaves her. Jack shows up one day and goes, "I'm leaving you for our dealer." He gets all of his stuff. He moves out. She says, at this point, she was eighty pounds, writhing on the floor. She goes, "I was so weak and malnourished that I could not stand up." She crawls to a phone. She calls Mark, Jack's friend, and he comes over and he's like, "We need to find your dad." Luckily, she had her dad's number somewhere. She had written it down the last time he had called her. He calls the dad. He's like, "You need." to come get Jenna and drive her to wherever you are. And Jenna goes, I don't think I'll survive of car ride. So he wheels her in a wheelchair onto the plane. They fly her. Her dad comes and picks her up in a wheelchair. When she gets to her dad and her grandma, she is 75 pounds. Yeah. Yeah. And okay, we have read a lot of stories of anorexia. This is the only person who has truly made the effects of a drug addiction, the effects of, I mean, I guess it's not an eating disorder, but that much of a weight loss sound truly horrific. She talks about how she couldn't stand up to go to the bathroom. Anytime she tried to eat, she threw up. And then also just from like a vanity standpoint, on the way down, she talks about how nobody wanted to shoot with her anymore because she was too skinny. She's like, I was skin and bones. And that sounds like absurd. It sounds absurd to be like, yeah, when someone's 5'7 and 75 pounds, that's not great either physically or looks wise. But we have read some books where people are like, I was 80 pounds and you know what? I was sleepy sometimes. So here's a photo.
0: (laughs) Or someone who'll be like, I was so skinny that my doctors were red flagging all of these things that were potential hazards to my health. Luckily, it was all reversible. No one ever comes into the book with this level of honesty and no offense it's supposed to be repulsive like it's supposed to really like discourage you from ever going down this road and she does it
1: very successfully i mean she talks about how her hair was falling out her skin was gray all of her bones were pointing out she goes every time i leaned back my spine was bruising itself she was like i could not get to the bathroom on my own so when she got to this airport her dad didn't even recognize her because she was so
0: sunken and sick and she talks about the months that they had to nurse her back to health. So obviously she's fully out of commission. She spent a couple of months reconnecting with her entire family, who she hadn't really seen or talked to in ages. So just to recap, at this point, she has, at 16, run away from home, moved in with her 25-year-old tattoo artist slash gang affiliate boyfriend, become a stripper, worked her way to the top of the strip club. Her best friend gets murdered. She finds a new best friend slash girlfriend. She starts modeling in photos, becomes one of the most photographed girls on the circuit, basically, does a couple of porns, gets addicted to meth, and is now 20 years old and being nursed back to health by her family. So book three of the Bible takes us back in time and is intercut with interviews with her brother and dad in current day and filling in the gaps of what
1: her childhood was like. It pulls from diary entries. It starts with a letter from her father describing how he met her mother, how much she loved her mother. I mean, he loved her mother. And just how once she died, he like never knew how to deal with the grief. He never wanted to talk to Jenna about her mother because he felt one, he couldn't bear remembering her and two he didn't want to make Jenna sad about what she missed out on Mm -hmm. but of course Jenna was like I would have rather known because then I spent the rest of my life just wondering a bizarre thing that happened I don't know if bizarre is the right word but they talk about after her mother died of skin cancer her mother's family abandoned them completely they didn't even come to the funeral that's crazy they took the kids out one time and then brought them back 10 minutes later the mother's family had nothing to do with Jenna and her family ever again it's like a story of Generation after generation, no one knows how to deal with the grief. Another interesting turn of this story that I think is why it's so deeply American is at the point that their mother had gotten skin cancer, Jenna's father had a really good job. He was running a local TV station. And he says he was making 120K a year, which for the 70s, I'm pretty sure is really great money. Mm-hmm. Her skin cancer ran them dry. When she died, they had hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. In order to pay that debt back, they sold everything they owned from the house down to Jenna's dolls. and they had to move into a trailer with her father's mother. He still owed $25,000. So now he had nothing to his name, $25,000 of debt. All of this grief, no support, and two small children. So he decides after this, he's going to become a cop. His explanation is that he was so miserable in his personal life, he felt so out of control that he decided he was going to go and try and put law and order into the outside life. Like he couldn't fix his family, but maybe he could fix the world. Unfortunately... Vegas is not a super legal place, especially on in the 70s and 80s. So the fact that he was a cop who would not
0: take bribes and play the game put basically a red dot on his forehead.
1: Jenna got kidnapped. Like, they were constantly targets. They were joking about the times men would show up with guns in the middle of the night, how Jenna wasn't allowed to be near windows because he was always scared that she would get kidnapped again. They had this horribly... Violent and unsettling childhood. They moved constantly because they had no money. From Vegas to Florida. At one point, they're in Montana. They're just bopping around their entire childhood. And one thing that becomes very clear is the violence that follows them everywhere they go. Mm-hmm. Jenna and her brother were inseparable. They really only had each other, and they were constantly like playing ninjas. He talks about throwing throwing star into her forehead and then like pulling it out, and there was like a giant bruise and a dent
0: in her head. And the dad was like, "What happened?" And she's like,
1: "Ah, oh, hit my head." <laughs> Part of the problem was that their father was pretty absent because he was working 12 hours a day. So he would work all night and then sleep all day. He says that he couldn't get good babysitters. He got one babysitter that was literally from a mental institution who offered to drown Jenna because she was being bad. They had another babysitter who sold the kids back to the mob because there was a hitman on him so at this point he goes i didn't know what to do i had to work so i finally decided i'd just get a wife so he marries some woman who ends up being the stepmom from hell so he marries this woman named um majority marjorie 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 have it's- you never heard of that name i forgot about the name marjorie uh-huh
0: <laughs> i got of don't know where to go from there <laughs> He really is looking for a babysitter to marry so that she has some sort of feeling of responsibility over the kids. But instead, he marries this woman who's just an absolute fucking psycho. She doesn't feed the kids. So he's gone for hours and hours at a time, and she's supposed to just kind of be in charge. And instead, she, like, is horrible to them. All the food in the fridge is, like, marked with her name, and they're not allowed to touch it. Otherwise, they're just going to get their asses kicked. So they're starving. At a certain point, they had to call the grandma and be like, please help us. We're starving to death.
1: They said we're starving. The grandma goes, how long have you been starving for? And they go, months. So they move in with their grandmother at one point. The grandmother is a major alcoholic and drug addict. Yeah, they tell this one story where they go, she poured herself
0: a glass full of bourbon after dinner and she drank it and boom, she passed out right into the coffee table. The glass shattered everywhere and she didn't move. So we called dad and said, we're staying at grandma's and we played over her lifeless body for hours. There was no adults around. There was So much violence. Part of this chapter is just a transcription of a conversation where they're recalling all of these stories and it feels very lighthearted. Yeah, they're like laughing and reminiscing
1: about the crazy stories
0: of their youth. So this story, Tony, the brother says, and someone tried to feel Jenna up in school. Remember, I came to beat him up while class was still going on. I was beating him and the teacher came running over and started choking me against the wall. So I punched her out. Then they go on to like kind of wonder why did we fight so much? And Jenna goes, but we had fun, though. We had so much fun. Tony said, it sounds horrible, but it really wasn't. And then Larry, the dad, goes, every time we were around Jenna, we ended up punching someone. And Tony goes,
1: it's still true. The games they played as kids, they talk about this game they do where they'd... They would just drive around and spray the fire extinguisher at people. Yeah, and like fuck them over. But here's what I want to also talk about. The father talks about his time in Vietnam. He had gone to Vietnam as a soldier before he married their mother. It's incredibly tragic in like the most ordinary American way. He talks about his time in Vietnam and he tells one story about getting... 20- 20 nuns and some orphans out of a little village. He goes, "We were being followed by North Vietnamese regulars and some Viet Cong, so I placed myself halfway between the helicopters and the tree line. I had my Thompson machine gun on my back, my M14 rifle in my hands. When they came out of the tree line, I just started picking them off. The next day they found 61 bodies that I had killed lying there. And that doesn't include the bodies of North Vietnamese hauled off to the tree line. And then Jenna goes, "He killed all those guys without batting an eyelash, but he was scared of bugs." And then he goes on to say that later he went to Africa in the Congo. He goes, well, I found out in war the best way to come home alive is to sneak up on people and shoot them. When I got to Africa, I still had some humanity left. When we captured the rebels, we would have a trial, and then we would pass judgment. We would imprison them and execute them or send them back to their village. But after 4 months of walking the bloody wake of Simba massacres, we flew the black flag. If you ran you were a Simba rebel. If you stood still you were a well disciplined Simba rebel. So we shot everyone. I would come up to a village and instead of going house to house I would level the whole place. I would call in P51 Mustangs. We used napalm at a contingent of howitzers. We went from village to village killing them all. We just didn't care. We didn't care. You know, it's not something that really goes away. It's always there, but I have to shut it off. It took me about 10 years to be social afterwards because I was really out of my element in the world. He goes, I was thinking about going into the French Foreign Legion because I just couldn't cope in the world. I couldn't carry on a conversation. Back to my original statement, like, this is the American tale. We did this to a lot of people where we sent them to a country and just told them to murder everybody and then said, come back and raise children. Yeah, The generations and generations and generations of, like, trauma trauma that went in to creating and when I say Jenna Jameson I'm not talking about the fact that she was important I'm talking about traumatized individuals like people who are incapable of proper relationships you go why was she constantly in these situations where such awful things were happening to her and it's like well, who was supposed to take care of her? Her dead mom? The grandparents who abandoned them? I know her father wasn't a good father, and me and Ashley have, like, debated this, but I do think... How do you expect somebody who at 18 was told to just raise villages to come back, be a father to children? He just literally didn't know what he was doing, and so he became a cop and tried to instill order, but... There was so much damage in that home. And then everybody's addicted to meth. They joke all the time about how later on the grandma would like steal cocaine from them. They would all do drugs together sometimes.
0: Yeah, they were talking about one time like doing a line and they were like, how funny is it when Jenna was like, dad, just do coke with us. Get down with your bad self.
1: And they were like, and then we all did coke. I mean, these were all people who just, to quote him later, he says, I tried to do my best, but my best was not good. And I think that that's the truth. I do mm-hmm. think he loved them very much and he was there for them as much as he could be. But he says, I never knew how to communicate with you. And it's like, Yeah, he had murdered like hundreds of people. So then at a certain point, Jenna and Tony, her brother,
0: have to sort of ultimatum the dad. They're like, it's us or Marjorie. So they get the dad
1: to leave her. I will say in the dad's defense, he always took his children's side. And he did love them and he did do the best he could. And I think the best he could is if they came to him with a problem, he would do anything to fix it for them. But he did not know how to ask, is there a problem here? And the thing about children is they're not forthcoming. Yeah. You need to be able to say what's happening. And when Jenna ran away, he needed to say to her, are you safe? Before he was mad. So he leaves Marjorie. Then when you get to Jenna's
0: diary entries, you see that Marjorie was awful to her, but it was the only mother she ever knew. So she's very
1: conflicted about this divorce. She always wanted Marjorie's approval. Yeah. Because when you're like eight years old, even if you hate somebody, they are the authority figure. They are yeah, your mother. the mom. She did want Marjorie to love her. And Marjorie was crazy. He goes through five marriages by the time this book came out. But at one point, he married somebody nice. And Jenna's like, I appreciated that she was making me lunches and she was there for me, but it was too late. I just couldn't. And Tony had, like, an enormous distrust of these women. Also, throughout these chapters, she's doing flashbacks to the different goalposts she met with boys sexually. And it's, like, her first kiss, her first boyfriend, her first love. And then she tells a story about losing her virginity. So her first
0: love, she did not sleep with because she had this line in her brain that she couldn't have sex
1: until she got her period. Period. He was 18. She was 14 and a young looking 14. And she goes, I do wonder now if there was something wrong with him that he was interested in a young looking 14 as an 18 year old man. But they break up and she decides she needs to lose her virginity. They get a limo, they get drunk. She goes out, she goes to this guy's house. She thinks about having sex with him. She changes her mind. He's supposed to drop her off at home. Instead, he drives her to his house. She blacks out. She's so drunk. She wakes up in the morning in a pool of her own blood and she's thrilled. She's so happy. She goes and checks. Her hymen is gone. She goes, I never once thought of it as date rape. Her and Cliff ended up dating. She was just so happy to not be a virgin anymore. Ultimately, Cliff cheats on her and she gets back at him by having sex with his friend. Yes. So she says, before Cliff, everything I had ever done, every piece of myself I had ever given a man was because it was something I wanted to do with someone I felt an emotional connection to. But now that he had hurt me, it was on. Sexuality became a tool for so much more than just connecting with a boy I was attracted to. I realized that it could serve any purpose I needed. It was a weapon I could exploit mercilessly. So just to mess with Cliff, I continued to see Owen. I think at this point, she was probably 14, 15 years old, and she was partying a lot. Her dad saw and didn't know what to do and wanted to save her. I mean, the thing is, he does always want to try and help. So he pulls them out of Vegas, which was smart. Vegas is not a good place. But he takes them to Montana, which is a small town, hoping that just like raising cattle on a farm will give them the wholesome childhood he wants to give them.
0: Yeah. So she says she went from a school that had thousands to a sophomore class of nine and it was pure hell. So this plan to sort of get them out of the city and into a small, more wholesome place completely backfires because the people in this place are horrible to Jenna. They bully her senseless. Aside from the fact that the girls there are like beating the shit out of her, literally beating her up because they just hate her. We also get a hint from her that something else just deeply traumatic happens, but she doesn't tell us about it yet. So book four kicks off with her having been nursed back to health by her family. They fed her butter-soaked focaccia until she gained weight. And she also talks about how this was kind of a nice time. She's only 20 years old and she hasn't
1: spent time with her family in over four years. She says, soon my brother started coming into my room and we'd play cards and laugh about how fucked up we'd each gotten. It was as if no time had passed since the days when we were so close. I mean, truly her brother is on the lam right now. <laughs> but because they were on the run, he was kind
0: of forced to sober up by default because he didn't have a dealer in every city. So So
1: So now he's doing pretty good, aside from the fact that he's on the run. So clearly when she had needed them, they had accepted her with open arms and done everything they could to get her back on track. And she put on weight, and after two months, she decides she's ready to move back to L.A. And I think maybe less damaged people would have said two months is not a ton of time. I don't even know if
0: it's necessarily damage or if it's just the personalities we're working with. Jenna Jameson as we've learned thus far is not a person who can be told what to do unless by an abusive boyfriend. So she moves back to LA where she knows nobody except for one woman, Nikki Tyler. They had done a scene together during her early stint in porn. They did that softcore scene together. Mm -hmm. They went home and hooked up that night. They had a real friendship
1: and more. Nikki was the only woman in a group of pretty catty women according to Jenna that had her back and kind of explained to her the ropes and helped her get a sense of how to handle the Susie Randalls of the world. And so she runs back to Nikki. Nikki took her in and let her live there. And she says she was like a mother, but I wanted her to be more than a mother. I wanted her to be my girlfriend. And she goes, after Jack, I didn't think I'd be able to open up to a man again and allow myself to be that vulnerable. After working at the crazy horse for so long, every man in my mind was a cheater, a liar, and a shitty human being. I was angry and more than ready to become a heartbreaker. Add to this, my experience with Jennifer and Nikki, and I was pretty sure I was gay. I also wanted to point out that
0: the pattern we're seeing here, Jennifer, she viewed as like almost a mother figure slash girlfriend. Nikki takes her in when she has been nursed back to health after nearly dying of starvation due to meth addiction. These are women who like really support her and like nurture her. And Mm -hmm. so these like mother figures are the people that she thinks that she's in love with. And I think it has a lot more to do with the comfort and the search
1: for family. But the problem is Nikki had married this guy, Buddy. So Jenna moves in with them. She's friends with Nikki. Nikki's kind of possessive of her. And Jenna's thinking like, what is my next step? And she decides her next step is to do porn. And everybody is against it. Nikki herself is like, don't you do that? If you do that, like we won't be friends anymore. Everybody is really turning her against it. And Jenna keeps asking, looking for one person to say it's okay. And the person she gets it from is her dad. She calls him and tells him what her deal is. And he goes, ignore what everybody else says. They have their own reasons. How do you really feel? And she goes, I want to do it. I really think this can be my life. And he goes, so you've made your decision. And I can't say that I agree with it, but I support it. The only thing that I ask is that if you do it, make sure you do it right. Don't ever compromise yourself and don't let anyone get the best of you. When you show up for work, know that you are an asset to them and not the other way around. So this, I want to say, is the point where I think he
0: finally does great fathering. She is going to do porn. She's already done porn. She's already one of the most photographed nude models out there. Once again, I don't want to say that there's anything wrong with being in the business, but I do think it's like a very holistic decision that Jenna gives really great insight to the fact that you have to be sure. And I think that the fact that her family is so okay with it that this just is a career path she's chosen and they're proud of her as long as she does whatever she does well
1: they're just like good for you and I think that that's really important. This gets into her porn life and she has a lot of good advice she has a very good experience doing porn but she says when she gives people advice she's like you have to know that you want to do it for life because even if you do only one movie you're gonna spend the rest of your life worried that your friends family and coworkers will find out and she's like when they do find out because they will you will be a porn star for life. She goes it doesn't matter if you become a nun you will always be a porn star star in people's eyes. So if you're going to do it, make sure you want to do it forever. But to do it forever, you have to have good first experiences because she does not glamorize sex work but she is like, it worked for me because I liked it and I had the constitution for it and I had a good entryway into it. And she goes, but I think what goes wrong for a lot of women is they do a gonzo film up top. Yeah. In a worst case scenario, a gonzo director will
0: take a girl to a hotel room and have their friends shoot a cheap scene in which she's humiliated in every orifice possible. She walks home with $3,000 bowed legs and a terrible impression of the industry. It'll be her first and Last movie and she'll regret it to her dying day. So basically what often happens is a girl will think she wants to get into the industry. She'll have a horrible experience but now this film is out there to be found. She is a porn star even though it was only one thing. Like this is a, a Mia Khalifa effect. Mia Khalifa is known as a porn star through and through and she was in like a couple. Yeah I think she had three months of porn. Basically she spends this section really outlining that there are pros and cons as there are to every choice in life but with porn In order to reap the benefits of any of the pros, you have to be okay with every single one of the cons. And you have to be strong because there are a lot of men running the industry who are very skilled at taking advantage of girls. And so you have to set your boundaries Mm -hmm. and be
1: steadfast in your convictions. Otherwise, you're going to get walked all over. So something interesting about her is she knew from the beginning, her boundaries were no anal, no DP. Mm -hmm. And she always wanted to be able to pick the men that she worked with. And she got through her whole career maintaining those boundaries. And I think because she went in with a soft core and then because of her experience with Randy West, she had made quite a name for herself. She was able to go in and go to these high level productions and do easier scenes that she had good experiences with and build up a rapport and make herself an asset in the industry where then she could come in and make demands as opposed mm-hmm. to being used up all at once. And she said something that really happens is people within a couple of weeks, they've shot every shot there is to have and then the industry spits them out whereas she was much more strategic And a bit by luck, but a bit because she is a strategic person. She was able to really make a career out of it. She also gives a lot of really good business
0: advice, like never let anyone represent you or sign away anything to another person. Just be headstrong, stick to your guns, and have the ability to say no, and you can
1: keep it all. The other thing that happens when she gets in the industry is she is really good at it. Her first film back, she goes, every part of my body, my hands, my mouth, my legs, began pumping in a different but perfect rhythm. I suddenly understood where the phrase sexual dynamo came from. I was a friggin' machine. I was fucking good at this, and when the The camera stopped rolling. Everyone applauded. She
0: is just like a talented porn star.
1: (laughs) The thing that we really like is she does a great job talking about how in her life, porn wasn't the problem. Everything else was the problem. but Porn wasn't the problem. But at the same time, she's not glamorizing it disingenuously. She says the job of a porn star is not a calling or even an option for most women. However, if you make the right decisions and set the right boundaries for yourself, it can be a great living because you'll make a lot of money while doing very little work. And you'll get more experience in front of the camera than any Hollywood actress. Though watching porn may seem degrading to some women, the fact is that it is one of the few jobs for women where you can get to a certain level, look around and feel so powerful, not just from the work environment, but as a sexual being. But that being said, she's like, well, there's a lot of pratfalls and not everyone can do it. And she goes, I had a specific constitution and I had a game plan and I was talented. And that's why she was able to succeed. At this point, the porn industry, the way it sort of works is there's a couple
0: of major production houses and they like to sign contract girls. So they'll sign a contract with a porn star for a certain amount of films per year. And then she is exclusive to that company. And the major stars are getting hundreds of thousands of dollars a year for a contract. It's like the old Hollywood studio system, basically, where you
1: work for one company and they just put you in a bunch of productions and she says now it seems exploitive but at the time it really worked in her benefit because she went to this new up-and-coming company called Wicked Mm -hmm. and she basically was like I want to be famous I want to be a star and by saying that she was able to align what she wanted with them because she's like she's not here to come make a bunch of money and leave she's like I want to become a household name and if she does become a household name, then they become a household name. And so they have the same values. And little did she know, she thought she walked in and walked out with a contract in 20 minutes just on her plucky cold call. But it turns out they had been waiting for her call. They had their eye on her. So when she walked in of her own accord, they were so excited. And they go, she said everything you wanted to hear. And she was willing to work hard. So right at the gate, they give her a contract and they give her a PR woman named Joy. She and Joy become like best pals. And their
0: goal is to sort of get her some mainstream recognition, not just within the porn industry, but she wants to be, like you said, a household name. So at Wicked Pictures, they do care about production. Like this is a company that is really putting some work into being
1: the next major player in porn. These are porns like nobody's seen before. (laughs) So she's doing these porn. She's putting out these wicked movies and she is becoming a huge name in the adult film industry. She spends her 21st birthday on set. That's right. At this point, we have now done one more year. (laughs) (laughs) So she's on set. She's making a name for herself. She's getting written up by AVN. She's well known in the industry. She loves the experience because she's like, everyone in porn is so nice because there's such a camaraderie. She's very professional and she's the alpha of the set and she knows it. And so she knows she gets to set the boundaries and the pace and the tone. And her life really takes a turn first. She gets Howard Stern. This is a
0: major, major thing because Howard Stern, first of all, is known to kind of like chew up girls and spit them out. Second of all, they had been kind of submitting her to Stern because they think that this is like a really great step for her for ages. They're hearing nothing... Finally, they send this shot of her sticking out her tongue, cross-eyed, holding a dildo between her boobs. And Howard calls immediately and is like, when can we get her on? So she goes and does Howard Stern. But she is really, really adamant about not looking like just a bimbo on this show. She goes in so nervous and so careful to present herself, but to not
1: get walked all over. And it's funny because she goes, this is a man known for humiliating women. And I really just feel like it goes to show you like in porn, she does not feel disrespected. But- howard stern is somebody who specifically disrespects women so she goes on and something that's very important to her is that porn was a choice she made not because she was like a damaged fucked up person not out of the typical narrative of the broken family oh she was assaulted this wasn't a last ditch effort for her to like make a name for
0: herself this was the path that she embarked on like she was not a girl who went to hollywood to try and become an actress and then found herself in a porn she wanted to be a porn star
1: And she goes, it's something I've asked a lot. Was I in this business because I was victimized or because I wanted to succeed at something? I examined it from every angle I could. And every time I came to the same conclusion, that it didn't make a shred of difference. Whether it happened or not, I still would have become a porn star. I've been to enough therapists to know that. And she says, you know, a lot of people are assaulted and go on to become doctors and lawyers. And a lot of people who aren't go on to become porn stars. So this like narrative that everyone who's assaulted becomes a porn star, every porn star has been assaulted. She's trying to dispel. But unfortunately, of course, in her case, she was big time assaulted. So
0: this is where she opens up about the thing that happened in Montana. This is before Preacher. This is a moment that she hadn't told her family previously. And it is the reason that she begged her dad to take her back to Vegas. Like we talked about earlier, the girls in Montana were horrible to her. So she thought she would just like get in with the boys And one day she was on her way home from a football game in a neighboring town. A bunch of boys gave her a ride and they
1: pulled over on the side of a road and beat her nearly to death and gang raped her. She had to walk home through the desert and when she got home, she realized they had left her for dead, that she wasn't supposed to survive it. She says she doesn't think about it a lot, that she had kind of blacked out in her memory. So she didn't go to school for a while. She couldn't go back to school because of the trauma. She was completely broken by it. Then
0: the school called her dad and said, if she doesn't come to school, then we're going to report you for truancy and she'll be put in foster care. So she goes to school one more time and just like
1: out of pure anger goes to one of the girls who've been bullying her rams this girl's head into a locker. Girl's knocked out cold. She runs back home and tells her dad what she had done. And this is where it's like he loves her. He hears it and he's like, we're getting out of town. We cannot stick around and see what the consequence of this is. So he packs up the kids and they just run back to Vegas. Yeah. He never knows, and neither does her brother, that the true instigating factor is this like horrific assault that she experienced. Right. But Howard Stern on his show said, have you ever been molested? And she goes, it triggered this memory and... That's when she shares it in the book. Yes, but she did not share it on
0: Stern. When he said, have you ever been molested? She said no, because she didn't want to be viewed as someone who got into porn as a result of trauma because she's not.
1: She also talks about that time in Montana. She says, I should have at least called the police. I wanted those guys to pay for what they'd done to me. But if I had told my brother or father, they'd have killed those guys. And then my brother and father would be in jail and I'd lose them forever. Ultimately, I cared more about my family than my well-being. I do think that is like a larger problem in the world is that women are afraid of sharing what's happened to them because they are trying to mitigate other people's responses yeah they have to think about other people first and I feel like that's something if you're a man listening to this podcast you're probably not (laughs) but if you're a man listening to this podcast it's not helpful to go ballistic and be like I'm gonna act out because then women don't feel safe telling you things
0: yeah and that's like the case for sexual assault and the case for a lot of things I think that there are a lot of things that people aren't honest about whether it's grief or trauma or tragedy and things like that that they just don't say because they just don't want to deal with other people's responses to those things anyway so
1: she crushed it on Stern. She ends up becoming good friends with Howard Stern. The perks keep coming. Next she gets to go to Cannes where I guess they have this thing called Hot Door Awards, which are like a French sex fest. Yeah, apparently porn's huge in Europe at this point. It probably still is. Those freaks. (laughs) They are a bunch of pervs. During...
0: The Cannes Film Festival, there's also like an adult film festival, and award show that's happening
1: literally underground beneath the Cannes Film Festival. And at this point, she is Wicked's hot ticket. She is blowing up in the adult world. They flew her out there and they have her doing every press release, every junket, every photo. They pay for an ad on the Cannes brochure. For like the actual
0: real Cannes Film Festival. And it's just a photo of her. And so everyone
1: in the festival is like buzzing of who's this blonde on our brochure. I mean, she is a fucking hustler, and she's in it to win it. She goes, I was willing to do anything to be someone who everyone loved. Looking back on it, it was just a new type of insecurity replacing the old one, and I was giving myself away to the needs and expectations of the public instead of the needs and expectations of the men in my life. It was just a new form of dependence developing, and it was equally detrimental to any sort of mental stability. But let me tell you, that insecurity, it's... Great motivation. (laughs) Yeah. So she, along with like crushing at every photo, she says she's jumping in the middle of every photo. She's setting herself up and she's like, looking back on it now, I'm ashamed at how selfish and opportunistic I was. But at the same time, success requires some familiarity with the fatal flaw of narcissism. And I think that that is such a spot on truth that we're like, why are celebs so crazy? And it's like, well, to become a celeb, you kind of have to be a bit bananas. Yeah. And so basically what happens is finally
0: someone from E sees her like a E camera crew and they're like oh you're the blonde from the pamphlet who the fuck are you and she just grabs the mic and with full confidence says hi i'm jenna jameson and i'm reporting to you from Cannes, france where the biggest celebrities in the world have gathered to spend a week sunning partying and watching movies and they're just so impressed with the way she kind of took charge of the situation that they ask her to be the red carpet correspondent for the rest of the film festival and she's just like interviewing regular celebrities at night doing like the porn autograph signings and those events during the day and then just like
1: partying until sun up yeah she's an incredible time she goes i was never the same afterwards i could do no wrong i thought i was finally finding myself but in reality i was turning into a monster (sighs) but like within porn she was it she went on that year to sweep
0: everything like at the avn show she was asked to post it And she was nominated for every major award. She brought her dad as her date and just swept the whole fucking show.
1: But meanwhile, her personal life was extremely lonely. Her and Nikki had had a huge falling out after she did porn. She's living by herself. She's kind of constantly in fear because she is alone in L.A. in the 90s. She doesn't have any family out there. She doesn't really have any friends. She had, like, done everything it took to get to the top of her game. And unfortunately... It's lonely at the top. She has this guy, Rod. He's a director at Wicked
0: Pictures. And sometimes they do scenes together. He is obsessed with her. She goes on some dates with him and then ends up just becoming kind of dependent on him because she had no one else.
1: She gets involved with him. They hate each other. They are not a good match at all. She says, One would think that after what I had been through with Jack, I'd be a sympathetic partner. But instead, I just became as bad as the men. I took out all of my negative experiences on him and really fucked him up because I had nothing to lose.
0: They never liked each other. Like, he chased her, she said okay, and then neither of them just, like, pulled the trigger to break up, so they never did. It was very bad.
1: We've seen it a million times. They play that old game where they're like, well, this relationship is awful, but what if we made it a marriage? <laughs> as boyfriend and girlfriend, we fucking suck, but as husband and wife, well, that's the answer. you know what they say, if the wedding doesn't fix everything, try a baby. <laughs> so she goes, in retrospect, I knew it was a mistake at the time, but I thought that the key to happiness was having a family, something thing I never really had. I always romanticized the years of my life that I couldn't remember. The picture of bliss that the Mazzoli family had been before my mother died and our lives went haywire. I thought I could build that back with Rod. In
0: a almost canceling out of the good advice that her dad gave that one time, at the wedding it's not cold feet. Before the wedding she's like, this is actually a bad idea. She even considers pretending to faint at the altar so that she can get out of marrying him. So she says to her dad, Dad, I can't do this. I don't want to marry this guy. This is a big mistake. What should I do? And her dad says, just do it. It's not like you're going to be nailed to the cross. You're getting cold feet. That's all. If you don't like it, you can get out of it easily. That's the advice coming from a man
1: of five marriages. I mean, I guess to him, he's not wrong. (laughs) I mean, clearly he had no problems getting out of any of those five marriages. Meanwhile, career wise, things are still great. She does her first like big movie shows, Howard Stern's private parts. And, of course, E loved her, so she had actually signed on to this deal where she was doing all the red carpet events for the Planet Hollywoods, which I don't know if you guys remember the late 90s, early 2000s, but Planet Hollywood was the four seasons of its time. (laughs) There was one in every city. She went to, like, a Bangkok opening, and she would see celebrities. She has a lot of really fun name drops. She talks about Bruce Willis, like, throwing her against the wall and kissing her, and then being like, I'm waiting for you in my limo. And she was like, no, too forward. It's funny, though, because she writes about it, like, being thrown against the wall and kissed is fair game. Yeah. But she just wasn't into it. I do wonder if he was or was not with Demi Moore at the time. Interesting. Because this was 1996. could have been. One of her big openings leads her to a film premiere where she meets Marilyn Manson. Her and him then go on to have a romantic affair She says he was very creepy, and she goes, when I wasn't there, he would leave me half humorous, half insane messages about wanting to set me on fire or feed me to Corey Feldman. She says he was obsessed with Corey Feldman, and also would always talk about how he wanted to watch women fuck prosthetic limbs. Yeah, she said he was creepy, not kinky, which is very interesting. Yeah, she said the sex itself was vanilla, but then afterwards, he'd be like trying to suck her blood. She also says Cindy Crawford came on to her, but she wasn't that interested. So that didn't happen. I think she was
0: more intimidated or just like kind of like, how could I have sex with Cindy Crawford? That's crazy. So she has this kind of fling with Marilyn Manson. She's still with Rod. They haven't gotten divorced yet. She said as soon as they got
1: to the honeymoon, they were like, what the fuck is this? So finally they get divorced. And then this is when like bender number two comes into play. Yeah. So he is like absolutely punishing her because he's still the director at Wicked and she's still on contract with them. And she says he punishes her by putting her in like the ugliest films, which is funny. She has this very funny comic strip about all the horrible films where she's like a fireman or like at one point they did a film called Satter where she turns into a unicorn and they make her like legs fuzzy and they give her a horn. And she's just (laughs) like, what is this? she calls the people Joy and Steven who runs Wicked and she's like I need to take a break and a break to her was to go on a dancing circuit so at this point she was such a hot ticket item that she could do weekends at strip clubs and make thousands of dollars not including tips not including merch she was making insane money she said upwards of three to five thousand dollars per set and she could do four sets a night yes
0: and so this is something that a lot of dancers get into porn because then you can do these feature weekends once she started doing porn she had not gone back to stripping so by the time she she did her first
1: tour, she was such a star that she was just raking in money. Mm -hmm. So she goes to Miami. She's kind of hiding out and she meets these guys and one of them is this guy named Jordan. She tells a very corny story about taking Jordan to the green room and masturbating in front of him and then like kicking him out But then they end up hanging out. She becomes obsessed with him. She loves him so much that after three weeks of staying in Miami with him, she calls up the people at Wicked and she's like, I'm never coming back. I'll fly in just to do your films that I'm still on contract for. But I bought a plot of land in Miami and I'm living here. She built a home in Miami. Yeah. So her and Jordan start dating. Jordan is kind of a dud. And he seems very sweet and normal and in awe of her. But of course, as always happens... The veil drops and he becomes much worse than the rest of them. She thinks dating Jordan is fixing everything. She goes, I realized that my whole adult life I had been in control. I had the power to make my life easier, difficult. I had just been giving that power away to other people. Taking it back was just as easy and as hard as stepping back and making a decisive change. So she moves to Miami and for a little bit... She thinks she has it all. She has the nice boyfriend. She's away from her ex. She got out of porn and she's just making money stripping and she's really able to take a break. So just to clarify, it was right when she had decided to leave Rod that she was headed
0: to Miami. So she has packed up her things from Rod's and now she's just kind of chilling
1: in Miami with immediately finding a new guy. But you guys will never believe what happens. She goes back on tour to dance and would you believe Jordan is psycho? (laughs) He gets so possessive. He doesn't want her dancing. He doesn't want her taking photos with men. At one point, she says he doesn't want her wearing tampons because nothing but him should be inside of her. It's crazy. She's trying to make him happy. She's trying to appease him. He comes on the road with her. Even worse. So obviously,
0: her dancing is hard on him. She's still under contract with Wicked, so she has to go back to L.A. to do another film with them, and he flips a shit. He doesn't earn money. She's fully supporting them, and he flips out about her stripping he flips out about her doing another movie he flips out about her when she does her non-porn engagements with e and vh1 he's like but you're still talking about porn or being sexy on those
1: things and you're embarrassing me so finally she breaks up with him too she goes to vegas she runs into nikki tyler her old friend mother girlfriend And Nikki, at this point, has also actually made the jump into porn and is dating this porn star, Lyle, who Jenna had met when he was brand new and was a sweet guy and, at this point, has become so addicted to meth and steroids that he is a monster. So Jenna actually helps Nikki get out of that situation. They move in together. They start their friendship and they decide, fuck it, we'll go on the road together. Nikki is a top vivid girl
0: and Jenna is the top wicked girl. So they go on this co-headlining tour so they can hang out and this is where Jenna starts using drugs again, this time Vicodin. She and Nikki are a mess on this tour. They make money no matter what, honestly. It just doesn't really matter because they're just two of the biggest porn stars of that time. So men will
1: just pay a lot of money to stand near them. But they are not good. They call this hell on high heels. And this is when she really became, I guess, a diva. She says that for a while, she had a real reputation in porn for being a diva on set. And this seems like it was the term for the worst. She says she was reliving the teenage party year she never got to have and the two of them were like on one extended bachelorette night. This begins the wild year of her life where her and Nikki are just touring the scene. They start demanding more and more and she says that people don't like them because of it and definitely there's people she treats bad. She's like, I'm calling my agent at 4am being like if there's not a limo here I'm flying back and beating you up. Anybody who was rude to her on stage she like would stab in the throat with her heels (laughs) but they're asking more money than anybody's ever been asked for in their lives. She's like for the first time strippers have writers. She's like, we are making all the money for the club. Why shouldn't we show up and have a full stocked bar and a beautiful linen-covered dressing room? She is correct
0: in that they should be treated like the talent because they are the talent, but also... There's a
1: line, and you can also just, like, be nice to the people trying to help you. Her and Nikki are getting more and more addicted to Vicodin. She says this is, like, one of the biggest drinking periods in her life. I think she's always somebody who went out and had shots, but she was never a drink-alone person. She says every night she was taking a couple of Vicodin. She was downing an entire thing of vodka by herself. And then she'd go out there, and sometimes... Nikki was carrying her. Sometimes she was carrying Nikki. Sometimes she was accidentally kicking Nikki in the face. She's like, whatever happened, the performance went on. We finished the show. And she's like, we would be mean to the men. They loved it more. They had this roadie who they realized was like absolutely a scammer who was stealing from them. They were like, he just was an intern. He didn't even want to get paid. And they realized he was stealing
0: like thousands of dollars from them per show. And they're like, oh, he didn't need to get paid because he was paying himself a lot more than we would have.
1: At this point, she meets Tommy Lee. Lee. They kind of have this thing, this on and off again thing. It's funny because she talks about how pathetic he was and how growing up she always had a crush on Nikki Sick. But she took Tommy Lee. But she's like, I really couldn't maintain a crush on him because he was so pathetic and needy and like puppy-eyed and desperate to be around me.
0: She says, he was just a fun distraction. I liked living on the edge with him. But he was in love with Pamela Anderson and always would be. No matter how much she said he hated her for putting him in jail and trying to take away the kids he loved.
1: But then she also meets this man jay who doesn't do porn but is in the industry mm-hmm. he used to own a studio and they hook up at some event they have this funny thing where it sounds very high school and college they're at like kind of a porn convention in vegas and they think they're being sneaky by like sitting at different tables in the cafeteria but they're walking through the casinos together and everybody knows they're dating she says everyone knew we were dating before we did and of course they're hooking up and they're kind of falling in love and she really likes him but it is tumultuous and she's going back and forth between jay tommy she's on the road she also just at this point is not ready to be in a
0: relationship again and i think she really recognizes that with jay it would have been the real deal and she's
1: actively sprinting away from that but meanwhile her friend nikki her partner in crime gets back together with the abusive lyle and it kind of leaves jenna in the lurch and i think because of this she turns to jay and at one point he just drives her down to arizona and is like let's make a go of this So they try to make the relationship work. When she's in the mood to make it sound great, it sounds great. And then when she's like, but then we'd get into a fight where he'd put cement in the keyhole so I couldn't get back in. And he'd drive me hours away and like leave me barefoot on the side of the road. And we'd fight physically and we'd beat the shit out of each other. Okay.
0: Spoiler alert real quick. This book ends with her and Jay getting married. I do think that if this book were rewritten today, now that they have become divorced, I think we'd get more of the little holes that she leaves of like, why did
1: he cement the keyhole shut? (laughs) She does say it's the first relationship where they had like deep conversations about why they were acting the way they were and opening up to each other. And it does seem like they keep making progress towards better communication and commonality and like a deeper respect and understanding But it's just too little, too late. One of their big knockdown drag
0: out fights is because she has one more movie on contract with Wicked and he cannot believe that she's going to do it. The men that she finds who are dating the top porn star who hate that she does porn is crazy
1: they're meeting her on porn sets and then like shocked she does porn it's so weird they're meeting her at like award shows where she's winning porn star of the year and then they're like wait you do porn <laughs> also at this point in an attempt to get closer to her brother and her dad because she doesn't want to live in the house she built in miami she gives it to them her brother at this point has married his girlfriend and they have a kid and she's like just lived there she has to call from them in the dead of the night and her dad's like, hey big problems. Six men are here to murder us. They found us. It turns out what had happened was her brother and her father had started a construction company. Somebody at the construction company was embezzling the funds. She's sure it wasn't them because she's like, they had no money. So whoever's taking hundreds of thousands of dollars, they probably have something to show for it. My parents really didn't. They still owe 25K to the debt collectors. So she has that money. She can make that money in a day. So she gives it to them. But then for the next eight months, is like deeply resentful of her father that she feels like he used her. She feels like he wasn't grateful enough. She doesn't like that she had to bail her own dad out. Mm -hmm. But she bails them out. They're now no longer in hiding. She's back with Jay. She has to go do one more movie. So she does the movie. Jay is so mad that she does it. They break up. She comes back. They make up. They finally decide this isn't worth it. Let's be together. They make it work. And this is when Club Jenna is born. She goes, over the years, I had noticed that women in the adult industry didn't seem to be valued. The stars were just disposable products with a shelf life of a few years. If women wanted any respect, especially in an industry built on their objectification, they needed to be more than just a pretty face on the box cover. Every big adult company was run by a man. I was talking with Jay about it and we realized that there was absolutely no reason I had to work for anyone else. Once I left wicked, so they started a company so that she could become not just a porn star, but a CEO. And they really like used the internet. She built an entire conglomerate basically. So she runs like up to 25 women's websites at this point. She does her website. She writes, she does blogs, she does diaries. She ends up shooting porn and it's like her and the only man she does it with is Jay at this point. She does a film called Brianna Loves Jenna, which is the number two most sold at the time of all time it ends with them getting married having this super successful company she really misses her dad and brother so she pays for them both to come and live with her in arizona so that they could finally have the family they've ever had she goes sometimes i think it's not fair that i'm giving my dad a happy ending when he never really gave me a happy ending but i can't help caring about him in spite of everything he could hurt me again and i'll still go to the ends of the earth for him and that's simply because as fucked up as he is he is all i have and it makes me more comfortable knowing that he's close by i may never have a complete resolution with him I've forgiven, but I haven't forgotten. There will always be a permanent scar, though it hasn't healed fully. At least it doesn't hurt anymore. Besides, since I'm paying his phone bill, at least I know his number won't be changing this time. She says they've loved me for who I am, and I had to love them for who they are, and they're not perfect, but we are what we have, and we have always been there for each other. And yes, all I want in my old age of at this point, she's 30, is to have everyone I love close by and have this company that I run. And she's so happy at this point when the book ends. Okay, Ashley, so overall impressions
0: of the book. Overall, I would say... I hold Jenna so dear in my heart. I really liked her. And I do think that this book, I'm really glad it was written. I think it is deeply useful for people who have questions about her, for people who have questions about sex work. Like I think it covers literally everything. It is a tough read. You guys made it to the end of the episode. So you know that there was trauma on top of trauma on top of trauma. This book ends so clean. And I know that since then a lot has happened if you just google her you'll see that the beautiful ending in this book was not the start of a beautiful life for her more
1: shit happens but at least it like gives you hope at least there's a lot of strength within it speaking of how it ended and like what's happened since I recently googled Jenna Jameson and she has since come out and been like what happened to me when I was 16 I was groomed for sex work I was trafficked by my boyfriend at the time and his uncle pre-shirt. and I do agree and I think something interesting about this book is the way it balances being positive about sex work, but also not glamorizing it at all. And I think something interesting about it is she's like, the time she did porn, like being on set, her experience working with Wicked, her experiences as a starlet were positive. And she talks all the time about how, as an industry, she was treated well. She's like, and there are a lot of people that are treated horrible. It's not everything. that You can have a positive sex work experience. She also really hypes up the vibe on porn
0: sets. She felt like there was such camaraderie and such warmth on porn sets versus
1: she's been on Mainstream sets, and she just doesn't feel that at all. That being said, it is interesting to see her now that she's a little bit older. Because one of the points she's adamant about in this book is that the trauma in her childhood did not lead her into sex work. She's really against that narrative that oh, like the poor little rape girl who ended up selling her body, yeah. because she was so damaged. She says she would have ended up in porn no matter what, and I will believe her because I think that that's the fair thing to do. I. Do you think it's true that as an adult woman choosing to go into sex work, that is different than a 16-year-old girl with literal braces going to a strip club because she's run away from home and she cannot support herself? That would be like my one qualm with the book is that it is hard to differentiate those two stages in her life. Camp Jenna that she did as an adult with her husband, she's the CEO, she's in control, and even the work she did as a contract girl for Wicked, those are all positive experiences. I do think that it is different to do that than it is to be a high schooler working for rent for your abusive boyfriend. I completely agree with that. There are a couple
0: situations in this book that we didn't really talk about. She mentions like some major, major sexual assaults. And then there's a couple other situations that reading it, you're like, that was also sexual assault Mm -hmm. that she can't really come to terms with. Don't tell someone that they've been attacked when they're fine and dealing with other shit. That's what it kind of feels like as her foray into sex work, is that at the time that she was writing this book, she was like, this was entirely my choice. Therapy and recovery is like a moving target. And so maybe 12 years later, she's kind of realized, oh, other things happened and it wasn't my choice. But like at the time of this book, she was very firm in the fact that she... Had full autonomy in making these choices. And I think that that's okay when you're reading this as the third year old version of her that wrote it. You're like, okay, this is a choice that you made, and that's what you believe for your best mental health.
1: Yeah, I also think it's an interesting look at the relativity of violence. Things that she went through that she did not see as necessarily assaults or attacks that you and I both read were like, oh my God, when you're surrounded by truly like violent criminals it's harder to determine what safety is to you. Yeah. There was no true security. And so it's interesting to see how the baby steps get taken into what just becomes normal. Right. Because one of the big through lines of this book
0: was that trauma clearly played a major role on her interpersonal relationships, but she says it
1: didn't really have very much to
0: do with her choice to get into sex work.
1: Yeah. I think the thing that this book does well is it destigmatizes sex work without glamorizing it because... In this book, the porn that she's making is not the problem in her life. You don't go, oh no, if she hadn't have done porn, she wouldn't have thrown her life away. It's literally everything besides the porn. Whether or not she got into porn because of what had happened to her, on her day-to-day basis, the porn was not causing her pain, it was the people. It really does show how crazy it is that we're so mad about porn morally in society because everyone around her is so much more evil. And the thing she says time and time again is, if you do porn once, you're a porn star forever. And the idea that she would walk out of that world she grew up in, in Vegas... And she is the most stigmatized one. Like, she is the woman that's like, well, you're going to have kids? Nobody questioned that preacher would raise Jack.
0: Yeah, and so the fact that to this day... It just follows her in this way. You can also see how that colors a perspective that she didn't have 10 years ago.
1: I do wonder, though, with the normalization of OnlyFans and sex work, which I think is in a positive direction, how much of that is still true. And actually, to that end, we have on our Patreon this week a friend and a comedian, Irene fagan marrow I'm so excited. She's like a multi-hyphenate sex worker, and she's a very funny comedian. She's going to come on the Patreon and talk about what she thinks is similar, what she thinks we got wrong what it's like to be a sex worker today and how different it is and how much the industry has changed in the last 20 years i'm very excited so subscribe for that episode we love you guys worms for life check us out on the patreon the facebook the wormhole and of course we'll see you next week stay squirming baby